We are called by God to live by faith. As God's people, we have been rescued from the world in which people live by sight. Their lives are slavishly oriented to the physical and to the temporal. But those who have been saved from their sin live by faith. What does that mean to you? To live by faith. According to Hebrews 11, to live by faith means that your life is oriented to the reality that God is. He exists. He is there. He sees you, knows your every thought and word and action. He rules over heaven and earth sovereignly. To live by faith means that your worldview is tethered to the reality of God. To live by faith also means you orient your life toward the future. This is true because the living God issues commands and He gives promises. To live by faith is to obey God's commands today with the confidence that He will reward your obedience in the future. Now Hebrews 11 also warns us that without faith it is impossible to please God. So no one can enjoy a vibrant relationship with the Lord unless they live as if God truly rules heaven and earth and live in keen anticipation of the fulfillment of His promises in the future. Is there a longing in your heart to live by faith? To live with that confidence that God is and that He rewards in the future those who diligently seek Him? Is there that longing in your heart to live by faith? If there is, you are probably well aware by now that one of the greatest enemies of faith is fear. Am I right? You know that fear is an enemy of that faith that you desire to have. Fear saps our confidence in God's promises. Fear weakens our enthusiasm to obey God's commands. Fear clouds reality, darkening our vision of God in the future with doubt and discouragement and confusion and selfishness and temporal focus. Is fear attacking your faith this morning? I suppose to some degree we might all say in some way, in some sense it is. But somewhere it will if it's not right now. Is faith attacking or is fear attacking your faith? Fear of a person? Fear of a discouraging problem, fear of facing that problem head on, fear of the future, fear of prevailing circumstances in your life, fear of peers, fear of potential consequences of obeying God in a particular matter. Is fear attacking your faith? In our quest to walk by faith, we need to realize that fear is one of the most common enemies that faith must repeatedly conquer. If we are going to mature in our faith, if we're going to genuinely trust that God exists and rewards those who seek Him, we will have to overcome many fears. We are reminded of the conflict between faith and fear as we pick up the account of Jacob here in Genesis 33. In this passage, we watch as God continues to nurture Jacob's faith. Twenty years earlier, Jacob had left Canaan in quite a hurry. We remember that that passage, and those that maybe haven't been thinking about this with us or just joining us here today, you'll remember 20 years ago, he had left for Haran, running from Canaan because of his angry brother Esau who plans to murder him. Haran, 400 miles away, 20 years later, living with his scheming uncle in these past years, Jacob suffered many severe difficulties. 
But God richly blessed him with a large family, with servants, and with animals. Now Jacob's returned to Canaan, and he's heading southward on the east side of Jordan River. Picture it in your mind. The Jordan River cuts north to south, bordering the land. He's on the east side. He's not in the land of Canaan here, but he's heading southward toward the land of Seir, or Edom, where his brother Esau lives. He apparently believes, we don't really know why, but he apparently believes, that is, we don't know why he is heading in this direction, but he apparently believes he must face Esau. If he's going to come back into the land of Canaan, Esau is too near to not deal with him now, up front. And so he has to come back, and he has to make amends for having stolen the blessing from their father Isaac. And so what does he do? He sends messengers ahead of himself and all of the people that are traveling with him. Chapter 32, verses 6 through 8. Chapter 32, verse 6. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau. Now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. A message of great shock and dismay. Verse 7, in great fear and distress. I want to highlight those ideas, that, that phrase there. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups. Notice that. Two groups saying what? The flocks and the herds and camels as well. He thought if Esau, verse 8, if Esau comes and attacks one group, that is one camp, one company of people, the group that is left may escape. How is he dividing the people? What is driving him here? I'm facing Esau. He's coming with an army. I never counted on this. I sent those gifts out ahead of me, but here he comes unannounced with an army. I'm in big trouble. Great distress and fear on Jacob's part. And so he divides the people so as to protect them. Verse 22 of chapter 32, we then read, That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of Jabbok. Verse 23, After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions, so Jacob was left alone. Alone that night with his fears. Alone that night with his distress. And we read then, without details given to us, that somewhere in the darkness a man confronts him and they begin to wrestle and they wrestle till daybreak. It dawns finally upon Jacob that the man with whom he is wrestling is the Lord. And the Lord touches the socket of his hip and cripples Jacob. That Jacob, you remember, hangs on until God blesses him. They wrestle all night and Jacob emerges utterly exhausted, hobbled by a severe injury to his hip. He is now absolutely no match for Esau. Esau comes with an army. Jacob is traveling with a family. Esau comes healthy and fit and able, and apparently we would assume with a night of rest, Jacob comes exhausted and physically inept. His situation that after that long night has become even more fearful in physical terms, but a different Jacob emerges from that strange night. And the key, I think, is found in verse 29 of chapter 32. Jacob said, Please tell me your name to this one wrestling with him, the Lord. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniles. That is saying, Because I saw the face, I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. He gains a blessing from God. He prevails with God in this wrestling. 
But as we enter into this new morning, there is still fear that is there. But a different Jacob emerges from that fear. There's nothing that explicitly indicates that he thinks otherwise, but that Esau is going to kill him. But having met with God, the text indicates that Jacob is looking at his confrontation with Esau differently. And we see that as we come into chapter 33. Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. He put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on, went on ahead. Let's stop there for a moment. You see some change in Jacob's approach here. We see, first of all, in verse 1, Esau's approach. Esau does not travel with a family, but with a search-and-destroy mission, it would appear. In chapter 27 and verse 41, all that we have known to this point about Esau's mentality is that he wants to kill his brother. We have no indication in the text of any change of heart on Esau's part. That is the, that's the people. That's the one who's approaching Jacob. What does Jacob do? He reconfigures the lot. It's a strange thing. But he changes his approach here. You notice Jacob's preparation the night before. There were the two camps. I'll put some over here and some over here, and if Esau attacks, maybe one of them will get away. What's he preparing for? He's preparing for an attack. He's preparing for the worst. What's he preparing for now? Now as he assembles the people, he assembles them in a different configuration. Whereas the night before he arranged the groups to escape Esau's army, here he arranges them to meet Esau's army. He puts them, the children, with their mother and arranges them to meet Esau face to face. And where is Jacob in all this? Where was Jacob last night? Last night, Jacob sent his whole family and all of his possessions south across the Jabbok River, and he stayed on the north side alone. Everything that Jacob owned, everything that he had, all of it, all the possessions, all the people were out in front of him, between him and Esau. Where's Jacob now? Jacob now, on this morning, absolutely exhausted, physically incapacitated, limps at the front of it all. Now, some gifts have gone before him, but with the people that he is presenting to Esau, he is now in the front. Something is happening. Something has changed. On this day, fresh from his encounter with God, he tackles his fear head on. He acts as one who truly believes God will intervene. In fact, he stakes his life on it. And so Jacob approaches Esau there in verse 3. He himself went ahead and he bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. Hobbled, exhausted, and humbled, Jacob sees Esau approaching and he bows. In light of the customs of that day, we're probably to understand that Jacob got down on his knees and he bowed with his forehead and his nose to the earth. And then he probably stood up and walked forward some more then got down again on his face and touched his forehead and his nose to the earth in front of his brother, then got up again and went forward further, prostrating himself again and again in this fashion. This is the common and symbolic ritual indicating submission to a superior. What will Esau do? You see what Jacob is doing here? He's saying that's in God's hands. My job is to face Esau. My job is to deal with my sin from the past. My job is to reconcile with my brother. That is the call of God. That is where he's placed me in these circumstances. That is what I must do. 
I'll leave the rest to God. He faces Esau and humbly approaches him. He limps and bows, limps and bows, limps and bows. But the climactic moment of confrontation in that moment we read in verse 4, but Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him and they wept. There's times when you wish you could read the Bible for the first time. <laughs> it's good. We, we, have, we need all the information we can get and all the knowledge we can get to understand it, but sometimes it would be kind of nice to just delete what you know and to read this for the first time. He has no idea that Esau is not going to kill him. But here comes Esau and embraces his brother. What a surprise. What a, what a, what a blessing from God as he delivers Jacob here in this moment. Here is the climax of this whole account. Jacob limps, Esau runs, and he greets his younger twin not as an inferior, the one who's been bowing before him, but as a, not as an enemy, but as a long-lost brother. We don't know why this response on Esau's part. It's hard for me to imagine that Esau intended no ill, marching as he did with 400 men, but we have no idea when his mind changed. Did it change a long time ago? As, as uh, Rebecca had indicated. Was it at the moment that he saw his brother that his murderous ideas dissipated? We don't know. What we do know is that Jacob's worrying and scheming the night before proves utterly pointless. Have you ever been there? I've been there before. Fear incapacitates faith. And we go through all kinds of schemes to get ready for this great trauma that we're about to face. And it never happens. It all melts away as we simply step forward in faith and confront the issue that God calls us to confront. That's Jacob's experience here. Have you ever been there? From Jacob's angle... Esau was a man to fear. From God's angle, there was nothing to fear at all. And this is, I think, genuinely a crisis of faith. This is not just a matter that, well, Esau's a man and he doesn't know all things. God is sovereign and, and is omniscient and he knows everything. I think there's more to it than that. Let's go back to chapter 28 and verse 15. Remember in chapter 28 and verse 15, 20 years earlier when Jacob left Canaan, God said this to Jacob, 28, 15. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. He says above that he will give him a great offspring. And he says here in verse 15 that he will bring him back to the land. In technical terms, Jacob's really not there yet. He's really not in the land. He has this promise of God that he will come back to the land. And so all of this we perceive to be a crisis of faith, a crisis of depending on the promise of God and trusting the hand of God in the circumstances that he faces. Jacob here seems to some degree to conquer his fear and he moves forward. We might also... We all might also gain some knowledge from the humility with which he approaches Esau. A little tip there for us as we have to ad address difficult situations, hard things that we fear very much, confronting a person that we're very afraid to confront. 
We take a cue here from Jacob. He approaches just humbly. He humbles himself in the approach. He does not attack Esau. He does not make excuses up front. He just humbly bows before him as in the custom of the day, saying, I am your humble servant. That the crisis of faith is over. Fear has been defeated by faith. What remains here for us is now the developing of the circumstances surrounding Jacob's faith. We notice here that Esau meets Jacob's family. Something of a formality in some sense, but we see the gracious relationship that is developing between them here as Esau cares about Jacob's family. Verse 5, Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you? He asked. Jacob answered, They are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all came Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Jacob's words are humble. They're gracious. He does not flaunt God's blessing, but gives God glory for his family. Sadly, we see here the family is arranged in the all-too-familiar pecking order of Jacob's affection. And this uh, fissure will remain in Jacob's family for generations to come. A family divided by competing loyalties. We'll talk more about that in the future, but we have here 11 boys within six years of each other in age. We don't really have to say a whole lot more as to how tough that would be. And four different mothers in that whole mix with the same father. It was a one competitive situation. But God has blessed Esau... Or, or Jacob, rather. God has blessed Jacob, and he presents his family to Esau. Despite this pecking order that we see here in Jacob's affection, which is very sad and very wrong, nonetheless, his family is, in God's sovereign control, a blessing. And Esau meets this family. Esau accepts Jacob's gift. Secondly, at verse 8, Esau asks, What do you mean by all these droves I met? I f to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, Jacob replies. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have to yourself. Now, there's, there's something more important than meets the eye here in this exchange. In 2740, Isaac prophesied that Esau would live by the sword. And Isaac did not prophesy blessing or fertility for Esau as he had for Jacob. So we would assume by this that Esau has made his living off of military victory. Esau's wealth coming from military conquest. But there's something even more vital to the text here, and that's that he refuses Jacob's gift. That's a problem. It might not hit us that way, but it's a problem. Jacob's gift, the refusal of Jacob's gift, creates a very tense moment for Jacob, who labors very hard to reverse his brother's initial comment. Notice verse 10. No, please, said Jacob, if I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Now that you have received me favorably, please accept the present that was brought to you. For God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. We understand the custom of the day, we breathe a sigh of relief right there. As Jacob, and we note here the parallel, don't we? As Jacob wrestled with the man of God the night before, he now, in a sense, wrestles with Esau and says, you must receive this gift. Last night, he wrestled with God and lived. Today, he meets Esau and lives. Seeing you is like seeing the face of God, Jacob says, verse 10 
But verse 11, in the custom of that day, Esau must accept Jacob's gift to signal their reconciliation. If he refuses the gift, Jacob's sin in stealing the blessing from Esau will remain an open wound between the two brothers. Now the the NIV trips here, I think, in its translation of the word present. And I'm not sure how all other uh, English translations present it, but it should read, please accept the blessing that was brought to you. There is a very important but subtle shift in word there. It is not the word present as used above, but it is actually the word barak, the Hebrew barak, which is blessing. Receive this blessing. It's an interesting word that Jacob chooses there. In the culture of that day, by receiving this blessing and by not reciprocating Jacob's gift, Esau would be accepting this gift as forgiveness, as reparation. The two brothers then are officially reconciled. But you note the use of the word blessing. Jacob has stolen the blessing from Esau, and now he comes to Esau, and without drawing undue attention to it, says, I have a blessing for you. 550 animals. Animals that are able to reproduce. My blessing to you is to enrich you greatly in the context of that day. So the two brothers, by Esau accepting the gift and not giving one in return, accepts Jacob's offer of reconciliation. And there are hundreds of witnesses that stand by and see this happen. There's a very amazing thing that's taking place here. More on that in just a moment. But we see here Jacob is reconciled with Esau. The text now turns and takes up the idea that Jacob departs from Esau, beginning in verse 12. They are reconciled here. Now at verse 12, we see that they are separated. And Jacob declines Esau's help, beginning at verse 12. Then Esau said, and I I would suppose very graciously, a kind offer. Esau says, let us be on our way. I'll accompany you. Better word might be translated, I'll escort you. I'll give you a military escort. Esau assumes Jacob will continue south to Seir, where Esau lives. It may be, however, that Jacob was headed in the direction of Seir only to confront this ghost from his past, only to meet Esau. Now that he's done that, his design is to move west, over the Jordan, and into the Promised Land. And we notice here Jacob walking very carefully, very cautiously, as he tries to create the separation between him and Esau. We have the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. We have the godly individual who has faith and the ungodly individual who does not have faith. And Jacob desires a separation here. Now that Esau is appeased, it's time to head back to the land. And where's his date? Where is Jacob's date in Canaan? It's Bethel. It's back to that place where he left 20 years ago and God said, I'll protect you. Jacob has a deal with God. He has taken, in a sense, a covenant with him and said, if you bring me back to Bethel, I will bring a tithe of all that I have and I will give to you my worship and my love and my devotion. You will be the God of Jacob if I get back to Bethel. He's not headed to Seir. He's headed to Bethel. More on that also in a moment. But notice verse 13. 
But Jacob said to him, so Esau gives this offer, I'll accompany you south to see her. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are tender and that I must care for the ewes and the cows that are nursing their young. If they are driven hard just one day, all the animals will die. So let my Lord go on ahead of his servant while I move along slowly at the pace of the droves before me and that of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. My animals and my children, Jacob says, they they can't be pushed. They're going to frustrate your attempts to keep moving as a military unit, but I, I cannot push them. He seems to understand the children and the flocks, and he has compassion for them. Perhaps he is also creating a way that, J- that Esau will continue to move on. We don't know what he means when he says, I'll meet you in Seir, because he never does. He might be saying, you go on to Seir and I'll be right there behind you, thus deceiving his brother once again. Or, he may be saying something like we might put it, you go on ahead and I'll have to stop in down there and see you someday. Well, you say that to somebody, they don't ever hold you to account to that. Maybe you really long to, and maybe you want to, and maybe someday you will, but when you say that to someone, they understand you're not going to necessarily be there. That might be all that's going on here. Jacob may be just saying, you go on back home, and and, and I'll come someday and see you. We don't know. We're not sure. The text gives us no indication. The important point is that the two are beginning to separate. Esau makes a second offer to keep the two together beginning at verse 15, and he obviously thinks that Jacob is headed south. He said, then let me leave some of my men with you. But why do that, Jacob asked. Just let me find favor in the eyes of my Lord. So that day Esau started on his way back to Seir. Let me find favor in the eyes of my Lord would be a way in our terms of probably saying thanks but no thanks, very politely. Just saying, listen, I I have your favor We have been reconciled together. We can live in peace now. There's no need for you to help me in this way. I'll be just fine. You go on ahead. And down Esau heads to Seir. Now here, I mentioned earlier, there's something very important happening here that's much bigger than just these two brothers getting along. What has God done? Have the last 20 years been easy on Jacob? They've been years of tremendous trial and difficulty, but what has God done? He has put Jacob, sent him back into the land, he'll be there soon, at peace with the Arameans, at peace with his uncle in Haran, and at peace with the Edomites south of him in Seir. God is nurturing a relationship with the nations so that his people are protected in this land that will someday become theirs. It is an evidence, a a, a foreshadowing of what will come, that God has his hand on this people and he has his intentions for them in this land. Peace with Laban the Aramean, peace with Esau the Edomite. So God slowly, through much difficulty, brings about his promises to Jacob. Jacob is now cleared for landing in Canaan. Jacob ends the journey to Seir, we see in verse 17. Esau is going back in verse 16, but verse 17 says, Jacob, however, went to Sukkoth, where he built a place for himself and made shelters for his livestock. This is why the place is called Sukkoth, or Booths. Sukkoth is still east of Jordan. It's not made clear why he decides to stop here. Perhaps the flocks and herds and children really are in physical trial. 
and trauma. And he stops here to give them an opportunity to rest and to recover before they cross Jordan. We don't know exactly why, but to set up booths or shelters for flocks and cattle indicates a lengthy stay. That was not very common. Now, it, the Hebrew actually reads that he built a place for himself, or, built, or rather, built a house for himself. But as we understand that Hebrew phrase, often that was just a tent uh, complex of some sort. The words used that way in, 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 in other contexts. And also we realize he's probably not building a house here because shepherds didn't build houses. They're nomadic people that need to follow the flocks around, at least semi-nomadic people, and to build uh, something like that would just not be normal. And he doesn't stay here very long. And so again, the indication is that this is not a permanent house, but a place of rest for some time. The battles are really over. Sukkoth is a place of shelter. The place of stopping, a place of assessing his life, a place now of preparing to cross that Jordan and enter into the promised land. And he does so, verse 18. After Jacob came to Padan Aram, so we're going way back to Haran here in these last 20 years, he arrives safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan, camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver he bought from the sons of Hamor, the son of Shechem, the plot of ground which he pitched where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Shechem. This is good news. This is very good news. Jacob has made the trip. He crosses Jordan. He's finally reached Canaan. And he comes here at Shechem. You remember this city? Very important place. Right at, pretty much at the center of the land. Shechem, between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. It's not coincidental that Abraham had camped at Shechem. The first place mentioned in Abraham's journey through the land is Shechem. Here Abraham built an altar, and here God appeared to him revealing that he would give him this land. So it's not without significance that Jacob enters the land and he too camps where Abraham did the first place in Abraham's itinerary in the land that's revealed to us in Scripture. He comes to Shechem. And here the Israelites will return centuries later. They will come into the land that they possess. And here at Shechem, on Mount, Ger uh, Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim, there will be the pronouncement of the blessings and the curses. And this is the place where Israel identifies itself with the land. Here at the heart in Shechem. Very interesting too. We could really go a long ways on this. But you remember this is where Jesus runs into the woman at the well and transforms her life. It is, in a sense, a statement that Jesus' land and Jesus' people are the nations. Here at Shechem, Jacob camps. It's not all pretty, though, is it? Did you catch that? Isn't there something that brings to your mind something we've read before? Jacob's camp is set up with the city of Shechem in plain view, which is eerily reminiscent of Lot pitching his tent towards Sodom. And in fact, Jacob will indeed face crisis here at Shechem himself. More on that, Lord willing, next week. There is a question, though, even though this is a very important city, a very important place to land, does it not bring to your attention, why not Bethel? Why has he not gone back? I think it indicates to some degree, and there's a lot of guesswork that's involved here, but I think it does indicate to some degree 
that Jacob's in no hurry to get back to Bethel. As a matter of fact, it will take him 10 years to get back there. We don't have that explicitly stated in the text as to why it took him so long. But would you not think, if you had met God as you left the land and had promised him in covenant that when you got back, you would build him an altar, that you would call him by name, that you would give him a tenth of your income. Do you not think that would be the first place in faith where you would head? Jacob doesn't. His faith is by no means complete and whole. It's no, by no means all that it needs to become. But he camps here at Shechem. Symbolic, important, but it's not Bethel. Not yet. In verse 19, we read here that he buys a plot of ground where he pitched his tent. Literally a hundred pieces of money probably had the uh, coin with a stamp of a sheep or a lamb on it, which would indicate that coin was worth one lamb. Uh, it's not really, it doesn't really read the text here, silver. It just says a hundred pieces, a hundred coins. And we find here a parallel, too, with this purchase of Abraham buying the cave of Machpelah in chapter 23 and the wells of Isaac in chapter 26. What's happening? God's people are beginning to purchase land. They're beginning to dig wells. They have with Isaac and Abraham. And again with Jacob. You remember where Jesus stops in this journey? When he runs through Shechem, Sychar, as it's called, he stops at Jacob's well. But Jacob also... Uh, digs a well here. But the point of it is that God's people are in the land of promise. and They're beginning to show their presence there. It is foreshadowing of the day when Israel would own this land. In verse 20, it seems that Jacob should be meeting God at Bethel, as we mentioned, but at least he acknowledges God, doesn't he? There are two important notes here. First of all, you see in verse 20, what name does he use? This, he sets up the altar and calls it El, that's God. Elohe, that's God, of Israel. He uses the name that is given to him back in 32, verse 28. The name that he received when he prevailed with God in prayer. It seems that he has, in fact, embraced God as his God, for he uses this name that God has given him. His faith is maturing. Remember the man who left Canaan? If I come back, you will become my God. He said to Isaac, his father, your God. But now he's come back into the land. And though he's not yet at Bethel, he is in the land. He establishes an altar. He worships God. And he calls on the name of God. Jacob's faith is alive. It's real. It lacks a lot at this point. But it's alive. It's real. And he worships. There's a second element here I think that's important to note in his maturing faith. And that is that he erects an altar. Now, in the past, he's erected a pillar, a memory, a place to come back to. But here, he erects an altar. Now, he could have used a Canaanite altar. Altars of the pagans were opened to all kinds of people. You didn't all have your own in your backyard like a grill or something like that. You would have these several altars throughout, perhaps, a town and under some, on some hill and under some trees or something like that. But people could use altars. Jacob's not using the altars of the land, and I think it's significant. This was a way to make clear that his worship was exclusive and distinctive from the world around him. This, too, was a matter of faith over fear. His faith in God trumped his fear of man. And we feel that, don't we? We feel that as God's people, that our distinctive 
exclusive worship of God puts us at odds with this world. And it can often create fear. It may create that kind of fear in your heart as you're at school or in the neighborhood or as you are at work or with people that you know or even family. There's that fear of being distinctive, of having a worship that is exclusive. Well, Jacob has a long way to go on the journey of faith as we do, but he has come an awful long way. It's not only been 400 miles, not only 20 years, there's something that's happened in Jacob's heart. The entire journey has been and will continue to be marked by trouble and trial. Is there any surprise in that? In a fallen world, God uses trial to build faith. And so, Jacob is not done with the trials of life. He's going to face some more, some very difficult days ahead for him. He gets to the end of his life, as a matter of fact, and he says something like, I'm dying younger than I maybe might have because my days have been hard. Many trials in Jacob's life, but God is using those trials to build his faith. His faith takes a great step forward here as he meets Esau. His faith was attacked by fear, but in God's strength, he conquered his fear and he trusted God. And it brings to our attention this morning this question, are you letting fear keep you from obeying God? Are you letting fear keep you from obeying God? Are you letting fear keep you from doing what you know you need to do? Realize this. You are not facing a crisis of relationship. You are not facing a crisis of circumstances as much as you are facing a crisis of faith. Here is the sum of the matter. Will you live as if God is and rewards those who trust and obey Him? Or will you continue to let fear sap your faith? We're there often, aren't we, as our faith matures. Chapter 28 and verse 15, Jacob had a word from God. He was, so to speak, in front of Esau, invincible. God told him that he would bring him back to the land. He was going back to the land. Whether it was 400 soldiers or 4,000 or 4 million, Jacob was going back to the land because God said he was going back to the land. But Jacob, in great fear and distress, faces Esau. It is a crisis of faith. And it's no different for us. We have just as solid promises from our God. We have the promises that, as we've said so often through this series, starting with Abraham, I will never leave you or forsake you. We have that promise. We have the promise that God is working out all things to the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. If you know Christ the Savior, that's you. And He's given you His Word that all things are working out together for good. He's using those circumstances, knitting them together for good for you in your life. You see where faith comes in? We get in the midst of these trials and circumstances and we begin to say, this is it. This world is it. There is no God. There is no future. The promises will never be realized in my life. He's not working things together for good. This is misery. But he tells us over and over and over again, I will be with you. Do not be afraid. The future will reveal it. 
I will reward you. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, then I'll come again and receive you. I'll take you to heaven. Do you see it? Jacob, I told you I'm bringing you back to the land. I'm going to bring you back to the land. Christian, I'm telling you, I'm building a home for you in heaven. I'm building that home for you in heaven. I'm going to come and get you, and you're going to be there. That's our future. But fear clouds that perspective. We begin to lose sight of what God has promised. I think the developing answer for Jacob was his battle at the Jabbok as he emerges as one who prevails with God. Faith is not going to come to you by taking a pill, by going to some unique seminar, by reading some book that was just written last week. That is not how faith is going to settle down in your heart. Faith is only going to come from God, the giver of every good gift. And we need to prevail. We need to wrestle with Him. We need to seek the face of God. We don't live in a temporal world focused on the here and now with no sight of God and all of a sudden He hits us with a wand on the head and now we're people of faith. We need to want to be people of faith. We need to pursue our Lord and prevail with Him so we prevail with men, with people as Jacob did. If you'll bear with me just a few more moments. Do you see a parallel here with Jesus? This struck me. When I see Jacob coming over the Jabbok River in the light of dawn, he has spent the night wrestling with God and he comes into this new day to face the task that God has given him. Do you not see Jesus there leaving Gethsemane? Do you not see Jesus there wrestling with God in prayer through the night with great agony? And I think we could say very safely that the energy that it took for Jacob to wrestle through that night did not begin to compare with the energy that it took to keep Jesus on his knees with God that night. But how does Jesus emerge from Gethsemane? He goes and he finds the soldiers. Do you remember Jesus in prayer in that garden saying, God, take this away. Remove this cup from me. I don't want to do this. If there's sanctified fear, I suppose that's what gripped Christ's heart at that time. The fear of having to face the sacrifice for, for sin. Having to bear sin and die in God's place, or in, in man's place. He couldn't bear it but he prevailed. He prevailed in prayer that night and he went out, and think about this, he went out and found the soldiers. That's courage. That's a courage that I hope that we want in our life. It is that kind of faith that God desires to form in you. A faith which never shrinks from what God calls you to do, but a faith that prevails, that trusts that walks into the new day and says, I'll do it. Not because I'm physically capable, not because I'm smarter than my enemy, but because God has called me to it, I'll do it in faith. I'll do it because God is, and He rewards those who diligently seek Him. A faith that knows this, 
lives as if it were true. This is how Jesus lived, and this is how he calls us to live. Think of the words again, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. There's the faith kicking in in Jesus' mentality. There's a joy that's ahead of meeting this army. There's a joy that's ahead of going to the high priest's house. There's a joy that's ahead of Pilate's room, judgment hall. There's a joy that's ahead of the cross. There will be a reward from God and it will supersede anything that we faced, any trial that we've encountered, any fear that we've had to face. By faith, Jesus saw what was real. He looked into the future. He obeyed the Father. He trusted the hand of providence. And in the end, even the cross was worth it. Christian, take heart. There is nothing that you or I will ever face in this life that God won't sustain us and enable us to do His will. Nothing. There's no person you can't face, no trial you can't face. There is nothing that's going to come into your life that God does not permit there and does not help you through. You are, like Jacob, in that sense, invincible. Bank on it. Believe it. No one can separate you from the love of God. No one, no thing, ever. If we have a faith like that, it will have to walk into the teeth of fear, but it will win. It will win. So I leave you with the courageous words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. For no other reason than that's where I happened to be reading yesterday. Because it's all through the Bible. But listen to these beautiful words. Hezekiah is facing Sennacherib, the Assyrian king. Sennacherib, on the looks of things, outwardly, can squash Hezekiah like a bug under his thumb. He has a massive army. And Hezekiah prays. And he speaks to his people out of faith. And he says this with words of courageous faith that God is and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Says these words in the face of that great trial. Be strong and courageous, Israel. Do not be afraid or discouraged because the king of Assyria and the vast army with him, for there is a greater power with us than with him. That's faith. God is you're looking in the face of that vast army that can squash you and you say the one with us is greater than the one with him. That's seeing God. He says then with him, that is with this king, is only the arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. With you, Christian, there is a God who is with you to help you fight your battles. Do you believe it? Do you live as if it were so? Trust it. Be strong. Be courageous. Take heart. There's nothing to fear. He loves you. Nothing 
and no one will ever separate you from his love. Tie your faith into that bedrock truth and live on. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we come before you with thanks and joy in our heart for this realization. And it works very well here, Father, as we look at it in the safety of this context. God, our hearts go out to those in this world who right now are facing death. The thing that they fear is the butt end of a rifle against their head, is a machete cutting through their neck, is the starvation of their bodies as they languish in prison and for no other reason but that they have faith. We plead for those people today. God, our hearts ache for them. But we pray for them and we ask you, dear Father, that you will in eternity reveal their faith and reward it. And we know that you will. And we pray for those of us here who do not even begin to understand such concerns and such fears. We have our own fears. We fear the face of man. We fear the prospect of the future. We fear the trials and difficulties and the responsibilities that we need to tackle from time to time. God, I pray that you would nurture our faith. That we would be people that are strong and courageous, not because of our own physical or mental capacities, but because we know that you are. Will you, in your grace, nurture faith within our assembly? I know that that means that we will face trial and difficulty. But God, we also know that this doesn't matter. What matters is that we will be rewarded by you someday for our faith in the face of fear. So God, we pray that you would graciously, gently nurture us and draw us forward. We, like Jacob's children, are weak and young. But I pray that you will, in your grace, bring us forward in faith where we learn to trust you in the dark, where we learn to trust you in the face of fear. May we walk in a way that is pleasing and honoring to you. I pray that you'll nurture this faith within our lives as a church, and I pray for anyone here who knows you not as personal Savior, that they would enter into that relationship with you through faith in Christ, that they would set aside the fear of this world and what it thinks, that they would set aside their own longings and idols, and that they would turn to embrace you, the living God, Show them, Lord, your plan of salvation. Illumine their eyes. And guide us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.